Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I really am thrilled to see lots and lots of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. If you haven't already seen our main history show on VIEW, Silicon City, Computer History Made in New York, I know you will want to return during regular museum hours to see its great exhibition that really shows how central New York was to innovation from uh, the Victorian internet age. So it's, it's a great show, don't miss it. Tonight's program, John and Abigail Adams, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, and as always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I also want to recognize one of our longstanding uh, and most wonderful trustees, Pat Klingenstein, Mrs. Patricia Klingenstein. You will know that our library is the Patricia D. Klingenstein Library, and it is named in Pat's honor. And uh, we are thrilled to also have a group of wonderful Klingenstein fellows who are also named in Pat and her husband John's honor by, by the next generation of Klingensteins, the Klingenstein children. So we're very grateful to Pat and the entire family. Also want to thank my great colleague, Dale Gregory, from whom you will hear a little bit later on for her amazing work in organizing these programs. Tonight's program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program and copies of our speakers' books will be available in our museum store. We are so very pleased to welcome Edith B. Gellis to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Gellis is a senior scholar with the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. A historian of colonial America and women, she's the author of many works on Abigail Adams, including Abigail and John, Portrait of a, Ma uh, a Marriage, a George Washington Prize finalist, and Portia, The World of Abigail Adams, which was winner of the Herbert American Historical Association's Herbert Feist Award. She has long served as a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, and she is the editor of a forthcoming book, Abigail Adams Letters, which was published by the Library of America, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and celebration of the nation's literary heritage. We're delighted to welcome guests from the Library of America who are in our audience this evening, and we want to convey our appreciation to them for their collaboration in presenting tonight's event. We're also thrilled to welcome Gordon S. Wood back to the New York Historical Society. He's the Alva O. Way Professor of History Emeritus at Brown University and the author of many acclaimed books, including the Pulitzer Prize winning The Radicalism of the American Revolution, the Bancroft Prize winning The Creation of the American Republic, and Empire of Liberty, which won our own New York Historical Society Book Award in 2009. He's the editor of the forthcoming book, John Adams' Writings from the New Nation, 1784 to 1826, also published by the Library of America. In 2011, Professor Wood was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama. Our moderator this evening is our great friend, Richard Brookheiser, renowned historian and author. Mr. Brookheiser is a senior editor of National Review, as well as a columnist for American History. In 2004, he was our very own historian curator for New York Historical's great exhibition on Alexander Hamilton, The Man Who Made Modern America. And in 2008, Mr. Brookheiser was awarded, also awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush. He's written numerous books on revolutionary America, including America's First Dynasty, The Adamses, 1735 to 1918. As always, before we begin our program, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a sound like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our three great speakers to the stage.
Well, it's a great, it's uh, a pleasure and an honor to be here with uh, two such great scholars and talking about two such great subjects. Um, first ladies, I think, are, are on our minds recently. Nancy Reagan died Sunday, and uh, Hillary Clinton is running to, uh, to succeed her husband in the White House. But, and there have been other considerable first ladies in American history, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, Dolly Madison. But the gold standard for first family correspondence is still these two 18th century figures, John and Abigail Adams. How come? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we improved anything? Um, well, I agree with you, certainly. Um, bit of partiality toward Abigail. Um, the letters survived. The Adams letters um, were preserved by the family from the time they were written. They hauled trunks of letters all over the continent and, and, and the oceans. And they preserved them in their family home for many years and now at the Massachusetts Historical Society. But the survival of the letters is one reason. And then they're just exquisite letters. They're just beautifully written. Stylistically, Abigail and John are a wonderful match. They're right. different. Right. But they're a wonderful match. And well, yeah, I think yeah. one of the reasons they have so many letters is because John was away so often that uh, they corresponded right. uh, much more than, than other uh, couples would have. But also, it was unusual because, you know, George Washington, Martha destroyed his correspondence. And, and the same was true. Jefferson destroyed his correspondence with his wife, Martha. So. Uh, I think uh, Abigail's at one point says, burn this letter or destroy it, but, but John knew enough not to do that, and they, they saved them. It, so it's a unique collection. There's no other couple in our history, I, I don't believe, that have exchanged such wonderful letters because they're intellectually equal. Uh, they're, they're, real, they're real partners intellectually as well as as, as, as couple, as a married couple. So Let how, me add, could how, I sure. just add parenthetically to that? Uh, you mentioned the John and Abigail letters. Um, actually, I counted the letters. And of the letters, there are about 2,300 of Abigail's letters. Only about 470 are to John. John. Which is, um, we hear about the Abigail and John letters all the time. I, that was one of the surprises to me of doing this project with Library of America, was to discover that so such a small chunk of the letters, small percentage She wrote of them. some of her best letters to her sister, right, Mary? Right, and to... Everyone else. Yeah. Everyone else, her letters. Well, now, clearly she's, she has a talent, but she's also clearly very well educated. Now, how, how did that come about uh, at the time that she was raised? Yeah. Yeah. Because women did not right. go to Harvard. Right. Right. She learned to read and write, and she did receive a rudimentary education at home. But partially, her education occurred because John was away for so long. For about 25 years, they were separated. They saw each other occasionally, but for really a quarter of a century, they were separated. And during that time, Abigail read in John's library, which he had left with her. And um, she's quite... A, She's, I call her an autodidact. She's a self-educated right. woman, right. and remarkably. And if spanning the letters, you can see the growth and see ways in which she um, became more and more erudite over the years. And her reading shows. Well, and, and clearly he, he respects her, not only as his wife, but also as, as, a, as an intellectual oh, peer and no partner. Question. And is, is that unusual? Yeah. In this era? Oh, I think so, don't you? Uh, that he, uh, you don't have that same sense that Martha and, and George Washington were intellectual equals, and it's certainly not true with Jefferson and, and Martha. He, he, he loved his wife, but he had a patriarchal view of marriage and, and not a partnership. And, and I think John and Abigail are real equal partnerships. This is, a, this is unique. I don't know of any other uh, couple of, in that period that, that had that kind of equal relationship. Maybe it's a New England thing, Gordon. <laughs> um, 
Well, Mer I, Mercy Otis Warren is another right, New England right, right, woman right, exactly. who, who publishes writing, and which John Abigail, doesn't like. Abigail's sisters were good. I mean, mm -hmm. her sister's letters are equally good with hers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they just didn't, they didn't marry a president of the United States, a future president, and uh, they haven't survived. I, I do think that, um, that we don't know a lot about marriages because we don't know. The, 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 the uniqueness of the Adams letters is that they allow us to see into that marriage. Right. Did she, did she ever done. resent these long separations? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, the remarkable thing is that the marriage held. Yes. Um, with, through those I mean, she flirts uh, with correspondence with, with uh, Lovell, a, a friend, oh, well, right? But well, it's just a, it's but, a, a little flirtatious sort of There's quite of a few letters that yeah. exchange. Yeah. Yeah. But, he, uh, but she says at one point that I feel like a widow. She says to John, it really is away a long period of time. Between 78 and 84, he's right. only back three months. Right. That and whole period. and how long does it take a letter to get across the Atlantic in those days? About six weeks. But, well, that's if it, if it, if it did make the, tr the journey. Many, many letters didn't. Uh, ships sunk. Miscarried. Uh, they were miscarried. Yeah. There was an entire year when she did not hear from him when he was in France, right. in, in the Netherlands. Yeah. And then she, she does join him in, uh, she joins in him France. later on. Right. Right. And, and you know, one striking quality of her writing is how observant she is. And there's this, this famous letter where she describes Benjamin Franklin and one of his French uh, lady friends. Uh, do you, you want to talk Helvetius. about that? Oh, well. She was shocked. She went to Europe. She's this provincial New England lady. She had never been more than maybe 30 miles away from her home in, in Quincy. And then she made this trip over the ocean, and she wasn't a tourist. I mean, she was um, the, the, the wife of a diplomat, a statesman, and was invited to, to dinner at um, Benjamin Franklin's house. And in came this flamboyant French widow who kissed John, she bust um, Franklin on each cheek and then proceeded to um, put her arms around the backs of the chairs of both Adams and um, Franklin. And Abigail was totally shocked. I mean, it was, it was culture shock. Um, but it was a good way, good introduction to being in Europe, I guess. But, but even Jefferson thought the French women were rather loose. I mean, he makes these comments about, right. uh, and, and they, they the, the culture shock for all Americans when they went to Paris, mm -hmm. I think, was, was great. Maybe, maybe it still is. I don't know. <laughs> how, how did the uh, Adamses relate to Jefferson <laughs> at this early period? Oh. Be, be, because obviously they're going to be John and they, Thomas or will be they have the warmest uh, relationship with with Jefferson when they're abroad. He he's a widower and he becomes a member of their family and and they just take to each other, and that really is the uh, the source of their ability to transcend their political differences and and eventually get reconciled in their retirement. It's that experience of four or five years together. Uh, in, in Paris, and then they visit in London. It, it's just an incredibly close relationship. And, and Jefferson just fell in love with, with Abigail and with John. And the same was true uh, uh, with, with the Adamses. They just thought Jefferson was a wonderful person. So I, I think that was a crucial, crucial moment that really allows them to survive the terrible uh, politics of the 1790s when they are opponents. Uh, right through the whole decade. Did, did the closeness make the political clash more bitter when it, when it really got going? Well, I think in the end, I think it, 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 it survived because John can't really believe. He gets angry at Jefferson, but he, he really can't believe that beneath the surface that Jefferson is a fine, honest man with great integrity. They, keep saying that over and over again, but they are bitterly opposed to one another. And, and Abigail is, is tough on that. She's tougher than John in some respects, I think. Uh, 
but so I think that the friendship allows the 90s to be softened. It doesn't aggravate their bitterness. Mm. I think it makes it possible to, to... Jefferson really is, when he's elected vice president, he, he comes within three votes, electoral votes, of, of becoming president. Adams wins only by three votes, which is a terrible humiliation for Adams because he, had, he assumed he, had, he would inherit the throne, so to speak, from, from George Washington because he was George Washington's vice president. And he sees that this is a normal thing. And so when, when Jefferson uh, uh, is vice president, Jefferson reaches out to him indirectly and lets him know that I'm your junior. I've always been your junior. They're about seven years or eight years apart. But he defers to, to Adams, and Adams loves this and, and realizes that this is, uh, he can get along with Jefferson if Jefferson takes that kind of view. When he finds out that Jefferson is writing letters that get published, that the Nazi letter, for example, uh, that gets it's terribly embarrassing, Adams gets upset, and, and he has moments of, of real hatred of, of Jefferson. But I think, it, I, I think the friendship comes back. It's an extraordinary uh, thing, given how bitter, because they're not just personal enemies, they're political enemies. Jefferson is leading uh, the Republican Party, which is opposed, which supports the French Revolution, which John Adams hates with a great passion. He feels the French Revolution is an unmitigated disaster, and Jefferson is a firm supporter of it. So that is the, the big issue between them. And that in the Constitution, I think. Maybe <laughs> states' rights, but that was a very long friendship. It went on from the time that John Adams was in um, continental Con in the Continental Congress to the, really the end of their lives. Dramatically, that they died at the same the same day um, on the fiftieth anniversary of the um, signing of the Declaration of Independence. But Abigail fa factored into that relationship in an interesting way. When Jefferson arrived in um, Paris, where she had gone in 1784, and he very quickly arrived, they formed a very, as you say, a very close relationship. And she called him one of the choice ones of the earth. I, I love that phrase. Which is, you ask why the letters are so good. That's, she, has, she has the capacity. It's a really great style. Um, and um, not only Adams and uh, John and Abigail, but John Quincy Adams also was very close to Jefferson and um, almost like an adopted son to Jefferson for many, many years. Um, I like what Paige Smith said about the Adams-Jefferson relationship. Paige Smith, the first biographer, great biographer of John Adams, wrote that Adams loved Jefferson. Jefferson merely liked Adams. <laughs> I think it's a great line. Well, Jefferson's secret with people was to be terribly polite. He was hated any kind of altercation. And so he, he would defer to Adams, and he would always say the polite thing. Um, and I think that was the secret of, of Jefferson's success with people. The problem with that is he didn't always believe what he was saying formally. He had anger, and he would say this pri privately to other people. And so he got accused of being hypocrite. Uh, too much politeness, of course, can lead to that. But I think that's Jefferson's problem. But that is the, certainly the source of his success and the source of his success with the Adamses and with other people as well. He utterly polite, when he formal and polite, he never would say anything that would offend anyone's uh, feelings. Now, well, isn't one of the reasons we love these letters so that, that uh, the Adamses are not polite on paper? I mean, to, to put it mildly. Right. They, they, they let it all hang out. Right. I mean, the, the, the letters are incredibly authentic um, in that Abigail didn't copy her letters, and she didn't censor very often in her letters. There were some conventions, but um, for the most part, she wrote what she called her first thoughts spontaneously. And so she expressed herself totally, her emotions, that the emotional range in her letters is incredible. Um, John's letters are very different. Um, 
And I think he did censor himself. Well, he had to. He got a couple of embarrassing moments where his letters miscarried and the British exposed one. And so he, he had to be a little more restrained. But, but Abigail, uh, her, I mean, there's this wonderful letter where she writes to, I think it's her sister, where she talks, she met John Paul Jones, you know, the great right. seaman. He's, he's, she's got this reputation. He's, and she says, I expected a man coming in to be 6'4 and a tough guy, and he's going to be, and he comes in, and this, John Paul Jones is a very small man. She says, he was so small, I could wrap him up and put him in my pocket. <laughs> and, and that's a kind of letter, that's a kind of response she would make. It's, she's just full of right. colorful phrases. And John right. is, of course, right. too. Right. Now, she's, she's colorful. She's very political. She's very politically engaged. Do you, did she give him good advice? Was she a good person to have in the household? I think she talking was. Talking to him. I, she, she had more political astuteness than he did. I'll give you one example. George Washington's elected president, and he immediately decides in 1789 he's going to take a tour of New England, a kind of royal progress to show the people of New England their new president, and he will meet with the officials at the same time. And he's asked John, would you like to ride in my carriage? And John thinks that that's not right to do. The president and the vice president shouldn't be in the same carriage. Abigail is astonished. What, are you out of your mind? You've got to go with him. He doesn't. He's going to New England, but he's going to go in his own carriage. And she, as a consequence, John had no influence whatsoever in the administration. He sees his role as the president of the Senate and has nothing to do with Washington. He passed up this opportunity to spend days, if not weeks, together with the president at the outset, and he doesn't do it. She, she did not think that was a wise thing. I think she was politically shrewder than he was. But she also... Um she shares his prejudices and right. echoes, amplifies right. them. Oh, I absolutely saying. agree with that. And I, I think she, she was on a learning curve and a, a fast learning curve because the early letters, of course, she's quite naive and, and unpracticed. And there's a great um, um, difference as she becomes much more learned, as she becomes what much more wise, as she becomes more experienced in life. I think her letters... Um, echo the rhetoric of revolutionary idealism in the early years. She was a great patriot, and her, her letters do echo that at first. As to whether she advised him greatly, I, um, um, when, when I started writing about Abigail, my mission was to write about woman's experience in the American Revolution, and I avoided politics. I tried not to write about the mm -hmm. political Abigail, but what it was like for a woman to live through the war. And that is one thing that is available in her letters, because she describes what it was like to hear the cannon um, in right. Boston. Right. She's she closer describes, to the cannon she, than she, she describes ever what Bunker epidemics Hill. are like mm -hmm. when, uh, and soldiers dying. She describes what it's like to be afraid, and she might have to pack up her household and move west. Um, and, and, and that happened all of the time. So that my, my um, great mission was to write about woman's experience. Part of her experience as John became more political and became a politician as opposed to a statesman, which he was doing abroad, and she was not with him. Um, and her letters aren't very political during that period. Um, she reports to him what it was like at what it was like to be at home, and maybe what politicians were doing. But she sent him newspapers and that sort of thing. When he was vice president and then president, she didn't spend a lot of time with him, which is why we have letters, by the way, um, the exchange of letters. She was there for only three years of his vice presidency, and um, maybe two years in the presidency, maybe a little bit more of the time, and he spent a lot of time in Quincy as well. But um, she became his counselor um, because he couldn't trust his cabinet, and he couldn't trust the people around him, and he became more and more aware um, of how lonely he was in that office as president. And, um, and at that time, I, I, I think what she did was listen to him and talk with him because she was his intellectual equal and could describe things. I don't think she fed him ideas. 
And there's this great controversy about the Sedition Act. Did she persuade him to um, sign the Sedition Act, which is the well, great She certainly is favoring it very early oh, she in the did. spring, February, oh, yeah. March. She yeah. said, we've got to have a sedition. She's right. very protective of John. I mean, exactly. he's being viciously attacked in the press, and she's outraged by that, and she wants these people to be sued, seditious libel. And, and so she said, we've got to have a sedition act, uh, of course. And John doesn't seem to have the same. He, he signs the bill, but it's coming from other Federalists. But she's a, she's a hawk on that issue. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to get back to that politics, but, but I have to say that the most painful, uh, the most wrenching letter I thought in her volume were, were the couple of letters about the death of her son, Charles. I mean, that's just, oh, yeah. you know, she has sure. one son who's going to become president and is a right. great success years right. before that. But right. then she has two alcoholic sons, and Charles mm. drinks himself to death when he's right. 30. Very uh, sad. It's, yeah. It's, uh, and, and, it's, and he died it, at the time that Jefferson defeated Adams for the presidency. Yeah. It was not their best month. Right. It's tough being an Adams. I mean, John Quincy has the same problem with his kids. Right. One of them commits right. suicide right. at age 30 right. or so. So being an Adams is not easy. Right. I, I don't know how you, if you measure uh, parenthood by the success or failure of your kids, they didn't do too well. Two of the, John Quincy is, is superb, although he's a very tormented man. But the other two boys, Thomas and Charles, Charles commits, uh, drinks himself to death at age 30, and, and Thomas comes, is a failure and comes home and lives with his parents, lives out his life uh, at home in Quincy. Well, I, I think it's less clear about Thomas. I mean, it is, it's pretty clear what happened to Charles, but I'm not so sure about Thomas. And the more, and in fact, one of the revelations to me about reading these letters was reading her exchange of letters with Thomas. And um, I think Thomas was as brilliant and as um, vexed as all of the Adamses were. I mean, it was tough to live inside the skin of being Adams, I think, um, and being a New Englander and all of the business that went along with that. But I think Thomas struggled for many, many years. And if you had a sibling I, like John Quincy, you, you'd be, <laughs> be tough. But to, he did become a judge in in Massachusetts. He was a lawyer. He had law practice, and I I I I I think the jury is out on whether Don't you he think was a failure. Abigail was kind of tough. I mean, I I just been I just oh, read oh, Laura. Oh, 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 oh. I, I just read John Quincy Adams's <laughs> wife's uh, biography of her, uh, Louisa um, Adams, and, and she. It really has a hard time when she goes to Quincy. She said uh, Abigail was tough on him. If it weren't for the old man, her her father-in-law, she said I would have uh, I, I would have found him intolerable. Yeah. So mm. Abigail could be tough, yeah. I think. Yeah. She thought that this woman was raised in England, and so she was suspect right. from that mm -hmm. point. She was too highfalutin. Mm. She had, there's, this comes from Louisa's side only. Louisa says. Uh, she's trying to settle down in Quincy and with her own household, and she says, uh, uh, where can I get a cook? And Abigail says, uh, in, in New England, we don't have such a thing. Uh, kind of, I mean, obviously that's not quite true, but what, it was a devastating... It's not true at joined, all. Right. <laughs> right. But that's, uh, I actually think they had a great relationship. Well, they did later. And if you were a woman and had a son such as John Quincy, or Adam, and we're, um, you wonder about the person this is going to marry. And she did. She did question whether or not Louisa Catherine would make a good wife. Once Louisa Catherine was in the household, she was very accepting of him. And then it was a very close relationship. And, um, and they, 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 they learned to care for each other greatly. I, um, and and that's, that's another one. I, I, one of the several issues, Abigail is blamed for, um, in addition, the Sedition Act, to the Sedition Act, um, uh, being a bad mother. And um, 
And I, I think that's a very post-Freudian take on um, ch child rearing. She was a New England woman of the 18th century, and she had very high standards. So did John. And John Quincy actually lived with John more of the time when he was young than he lived with his mother. She, and and um, Abigail had very high, Abigail and John both had very high standards for their children. And as did most New Englanders. And she, they believed in education and they believed that the purpose of life was service and duty and they raised their children. When you read this in letters to children, you must grow up, you must be educated, you must serve the public, you must, must lead a good life. When, you, when that's what you read in the 21st century, it sounds harsh. But it wasn't in the 18th century. And I think she was a very caring mother. And she was just, she was a religious woman. She was concerned for her children's souls. And, and here we get back to Louisa Catherine. She had a very close relationship. And the letters between Abigail and, and Louisa Catherine are very warm, particularly when they were in Russia. Um, so I, 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 I disagree with the biographers who um, claim that the sort of very a, few letters, or, right? Well, uh, they, no, they they it's there's a kind of trope in in um, American culture that there's a tension between mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law or whatever, and and that isn't that just that wasn't. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, I want to um, I want to move on. Not fair, uh, Rick. Uh, to John, and uh, the the considerable uh, political work that's included in this third volume of his writing, as the Library of America has already done too, is his defense of the constitutions of the United States. And of course, he is not at the Constitutional Convention. He can't, he can't be because he's, he's abroad. But um, what effect, this book is published at the time that it's, that it's meeting. And he, he would say later, well, this hit it effect on, on the delegates. But I mean, it, it does really defend the, the, the kind of pattern of div division of powers that the Constitution ultimately produces. Do you think it had an effect? Well, I don't think it affected them. I think what happened is that it coincided and, and people said, well, here's John Adams saying the same thing that we've just created. That is to say, uh, a bicameral legislature with a very strong executive, which he was keenly uh, favor of. And so he, uh, uh, he saw this as uh, he had anticipated, so to speak, the Constitution. But he had written the Massachusetts Constitution, which had the same kind of structure. And that's what uh, and that Massachusetts Constitution did affect, I think, the thinking of the, uh, of the uh, framers. So in that sense, uh, he did have an influence. But I don't think the simultaneous publication, they hadn't had a, I mean, it's a huge the first volume is a huge thing. Uh, very few people read it. It's so ponderous. It's so unlike his letters and his diary, which are so colorful and vivid. And the, the, the defense is just unbelievably. He just said, well, I didn't have time to make it short. Uh, and he realizes that it's it's because he just copies a lot of stuff. He just plagiarizes. That wouldn't be the term that they would use, but essentially that's what he does. Huge sections of it are just borrowed wholesale from other writers. But his point is that you've got to have a divided power. You've got to have a Senate, a House of Representatives, and a strong executive. And that coincided with the Constitution. And that made him feel good that he had somehow anticipated mm -hmm. uh, the division. You, you remind me of... Um a line from the education of Henry Adams, his great-grandson. When, when Henry uh, is a boy, his father is bringing out an edition of John. This is the grandson, Charles Francis. And so he has um, his son, Henry, read the proof. And, uh, and he, he chides him occasionally for being careless and making mistakes. And then, then Henry records, well, the lesson that I drew from this was that uh, if I were ever to write journalism, I hope that I would be dull in a way different from that of my great-grandfather. <laughs> so, so, I mean, is that, you sort of got into that. Why, why is he, why is his um, sort of formal book-length prose so different from these letters? Well, he says that, that he didn't have time to, uh, and he wants to be formal, and he's trying to put forward 
political theory, which he thinks is, you know, when you read that carefully, he is taking on the Declaration of Independence and the American myth, if you will, because he says he's, there's no American exceptionalism. He says we are not different from other nations. There's no special providence for Americans. We are like other nations. We're just as corrupt as they are. Uh, and he takes on the declarations, uh, Jefferson's all men are created equal. He says that's not true. All men are created unequal. And he, this is a defying the basic premises of American, uh, the American ideology. Uh, now, fortunately, it is so ponderous that people didn't read it as carefully as they might have. But he does have one wonderful uh, uh, section where, which is used against him in the election of, of 1796, where he talks about elections, which is, I think, appropriate for us in, in today. He says, elections are going to become so raucous, so corrupt, so full of money, so faction-ridden, that we'll have to extend the time of the term of office uh, each, each year, and, and finally we'll have to just have uh, people elected for life. He said, to avoid elections. Uh, I mean, this, this is a kind of statement that he would make, which got him accused of being a monarchist. He's back and forth because he admires the English Constitution. He thinks that uh, that's the ideal uh, Constitution if you just got rid of the corruption. Now, there's that famous remark where Hamilton says, no, it's, it's the corruption that makes it work. And, and he's, Hamilton's absolutely right, because it's the appointment of offices, the royal appointment of, of people from the House of Commons or the House of Lords to the cabinet that makes the system work. And of course, that's exactly what the English have today. You have to be a member of parliament to sit in the cabinet. That's corruption to, to, to John Adams, but, but Hamilton saw the, the, the way it worked. Uh, what was was exactly that that appointing people from the from the uh, uh, parliament to the cabinet. Uh, Adams uh, is a, a very strange man, and his views um, are really out of touch with um, with his fellow Americans. So, so how how does a man with those views get to be the second president? Because he had been the leading revolutionary uh, in 1776, 1775, 76. Uh, we wouldn't have a Declaration of Independence, I think, without John Adams. He really led that Congress. Now, he did it shrewdly. He had enough sense to not push too far uh, because he knew the Massachusetts people were suspect. But uh, all of the, you know, 1776, the, 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 the musical uh, makes John Adams a hero. He's absolutely right. He, he's the one who pushes for independence. And so he is seen as a, a, a great revolutionary. And he spends time abroad. He gets into trouble with Benjamin Franklin. But nonetheless, he is very successful in getting Dutch loans. Uh, he, he didn't get along with the French at all. But he did go to Holland. And he is able to bring the Dutch are the second nation in the world to recognize the United States. Uh, and that's a great achievement. Uh, and, and so he's respected. They're also the bankers of Europe. Yes, so. and he mm -hmm. gets money from them. Uh, in fact, Jefferson says to him, borrow some money from me, too, because I need to buy some books. Right. <laughs> any rate, Adams is, is he's, it's kind of a natural that he would be the, the person mm -hmm. uh, who, would, who would be second to, to Washington. He doesn't get a majority of the votes, which hurts him. He th thought he should get, he, he accepted Washington's leadership, but he thought surely he was second, and he should have had a majority of the electoral votes. As you know, the electors vote then they voted for two people, uh, any two they wanted to, uh, as long as they were from two different states. And so he, he, he assumes that he would be the vice president, um, but he would have almost as many votes as, as Washington. He doesn't. Mm -hmm. one, one thing that's, that's very striking about his letters um, to Abigail, but, but also, also to Jefferson and Benjamin Rush, is his curiosity. I mean, that... That's another unusual thing, I think, in a politician. I mean, there, there's one letter he writes about Lawrence Stern. You know, and that would be like, like George W. Bush or Barack Obama writing a letter about David Foster Wallace. You know, and yeah. you, just, you just, you can't imagine it. Uh, and he, or he writes about scientific, you know, descriptions of the universe, or he writes about music. Um, he writes about uh, theology. 
and and there, there there's a mind there, uh, don't you feel? That's um, kind of surprising in a man who is a professional politician. You, you, the letters think, to each other, uh, Jefferson and Adams, in retirement are extraordinary. But there's a little bit of uh, how to put it: one-upmanship, showing off. Uh, pulling out quotes from Seneca or Sallust, and the more Greek you can quote, the more impressive. There's a little bit of that. The two of them are going back and forth. Uh, and it's kind of a false correspondence because uh, Adams brings up slavery at one point, and Jefferson doesn't respond, and Adams realizes this is not, if I go down that path, that's the end of our correspondence. So there's a kind of but they, they certainly are, I think there's a little bit of showing off with that, those yeah. quotes. Uh, although but, they but intellectuals do, I, I, do I that. I think it's who they were. I think it's the way they, 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 that it, it, they, they expressed themselves as human beings. Right. They, they were that educated. No, no, and they did right. write to each other in Latin and in Greek. I mean, they quoted in the original, and both of them knew the other could read it. And I, maybe there was posturing in it, but I do think also that they knew with whom they were to whom they were writing, right. and um, and and I, I also think um, um, going if I can bring up a couple of things you said. Um, one was about the plagiarism <laughs> or the copy. Um, wasn't that a convention when people wrote in the 18th century? They didn't think it was no, that there should think be it a No, you wouldn't think it would be today. Right. I agree. It was, That's right. It was not really considered plagiarism, that the people did copy. From, and, and, and when Adams wrote that all people aren't created equal, all men aren't created men aren't created equal, he, he, he went on in that same quote to say some are tall, some are short, some are smart, some are dumb, some are lighter or darker, have dark hair or light hair. I mean, he really went on in that quote to say it's logical that people aren't equal because they look around and you'll see that people aren't e equal. Anyway, I am more of a defender of Adams. Than you are. Well, yeah. I like him too. Yeah. Well, all right. Oh, okay. So let me, let me, let me uh, pitch this to you. One, one of John's letters, I think it, it's to Benjamin Rush, and he quotes some Roman saying that uh, the corpse of an enemy smells sweet. The, the body of an okay. enemy mm -hmm. smells sweet. And John said, this is a horrible sentiment. This is disgusting. This is immoral. I would, I would, never, I would never think such a thing. Then there are three pages of you know, various enemies of his, people who criticized them, and the, the ends they met. I mean, one guy's house burned down, his whole family was killed, and then he died of his wounds. Uh, another person drowns, that's James Callender, Alexander Hamilton was shot, you know, and he's going through all these. And then he says, but I don't think this is divine justice, you know, and, and, and I wouldn't, that would be wrong to think that. But he's just, it's almost this, this, this catalog of, of the ends that they met. At, was his temper his friend? I mean, obviously, oh. I, I, I'm, I'm pitching that with an attitude, right. but he, had, he did have this temper. He did have these grudges. Should a politician have that? He did have a temper, and, and it, would, it would hurt him. I mean, he was considered eccentric, uh, and he would make these outbursts. There's one, for example, when he finds out that uh, George Clinton in the election of 1796, I don't know, got seven or eight electoral votes, and he just explodes. Someone else reports this. He says, oh, damn it, damn it, damn it. This goes to show you that elections are a, mis a mistake. He, he could have, he's a very emotional person. He, he's, he's, passionate. Not, he's passionate. He's passionate, that's right. That's the word. That's, and, and, and he's a zealot. But, but he's yeah. uh, also, when he got to know you, uh, he was very amiable unbelievably amiable and, and people found, and Jefferson warmed to him for that reason. He said, he told Madison does not like Adams and that Madison keeps telling his friend Jefferson, look, this guy's odd and so on. And Jefferson says, well, look, I, I realize he's vain and so on, but once you get to know him, he's really a nice guy. And I think that's, Adams had a, a, a tough problem dealing publicly, he could be, passionate and say things that would outrage people. But if in his home and talking to you uh, alone, I think he could be very warm, the warmest of persons. And, and he does, 
I mean, the, the, the signal uh, event of his presidency is sending a second mission to France. We're basically in a war with France. Uh, he sent a mission. It was a disaster. It, you know, the French treated us very badly. The first mission, right. Yes, the first mission, the country uh, is ready to go to war any minute. But he, 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 you could say he backs off or you could say he persists. He sends a second mission because he realizes, you know, war if we have to, but, but peace better yet. So he's not, his grudges, are, they're explosive and I, personally damaging, but perhaps they don't affect his, his long-range policies. Well, he's uh, the, the Federalists, the high Federalists, including Hamilton, don't want this mission. They want a war. They actually would, many of them want to go to war with France. In fact, Hamilton has these grandiose ambitions. That he's, they're going to have an army of 20,000, and there's armies created. He's going to be an effective commander because Washington will be a, a figurehead. And he's got, he talks about, well, we're going to take uh, Louisiana, we're going to take the Floridas, and we'll move into, we'll uh, get uh, uh, into South America and tie up with some of these uh, reformists in South America and break up the Spanish Empire. I mean, he's, uh, there's a Napoleonic complex mm -hmm. with, uh, with uh, Hamilton. So Adams does not believe, if everyone's frightened that the French are going to invade the United States. In fact, I, I think, this is the scariest moment in American history. Uh, the only comparable period, I think, would be in 19, the months following Pearl Harbor, where we rounded up 120,000 Japanese people of Japanese ancestry and, and in, interned them. Uh, we, we were frightened. We thought there was a possibility of a Japanese invasion of the, of the West Coast and, and espionage. Well, in this particular moment in 1798, there was a real fear of France invading the United States and creating a puppet republic. And they had all these fifth columnists, the Jeffersonian party, the Republican party, who were sympathetic to France. And so the Federalist fear is real. And Adams doesn't fully buy into that. He does not accept the idea that the French are going to invade. And without consulting anyone, he makes this decision to send a, another stab. He has some indication that maybe Talleyrand will accept this mission. And he does it with consulting no official. He probably consulted Abigail. And he does this. And it really is, a, a, he, he reaches an end to the war, the quasi-war with France. Unfortunately, the, notion, the, the no, news of the peace comes back after the election, and he, the election of 1800, which he loses. Uh, I think if it had come sooner, he might have beaten Jefferson. Probably not. The, the world was going in the other direction. But uh, it is a heroic act. And he quite rightly says the most disinterested act of his, of mm -hmm. his life. And mm -hmm. I think that's true. Because it's opposed by all of his Federalists. Opposed by his own party. Yeah. And of course, Hamilton has already written a pamphlet, a 54-page pamphlet in the election that's devastating. I mean, Hamilton's odd. He writes this devastating attack on his fellow Federalist. And then ends by saying, even after all I've said, you vote for John Adams. I mean, it's. Right. But we should all vote right. for him. Yeah, right. right. It's, it's yeah. the craziest. Right. Um, he called him moment. a madman. Right. And well, there's still, I mean, in fairness to them, the two party system is brand new and they're, right. they're figuring, yes, right. figuring right. it out even as they're right. inventing. Right. And it's uh, hard to imagine how fragile the country was at that time. It was a very new country and there was right. no reason to expect that it was going to survive. And right. we, we look back at with hindsight and we think, well, there was a constitution and the country just took off and it was just fine. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and there was continuity, but it wasn't. It was very, very fragile for Absolutely a long time. Right. And Abigail wrote a number of times, I do not think this country will survive. Well, on that really uh, fraught that. note, let's open, up, open oh. it up to uh, questions. We have uh, microphones uh, at the ends of the hallways. So, so the worst times in American history than the present. <laughs> so come, come down to the mics, and I'll, I'll just start on this side and then, then go back there. So yes, ma'am. Yes, in reference to the marriage being non-patriarchal, uh, which was unusual for the time, couldn't that have been a result of their being apart so much? I mean, it'd be hard to be patriarchal from 4,000 miles away. <laughs> it was a very patriarchal marriage. 
Um, the only decision that Abigail made in her entire life that affected her entire life was to marry John Adams. I mean, John Adams made a lot of decisions in his life. He decided he would become a lawyer. He decided to marry Abigail. He decided where he would live. He decided he would join the Continental Congress. He decided he would go to Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Abigail made no decisions that affected her life except to marry John Adams. And after that, that was her destiny. It was a very, in my most um, um, feminist moments, I say it was an ideal accommodation of woman to man, but it was, it was a patriarchal marriage. It was a patriarchal era, it was a patriarchal everything at that time. But, but don't, it, don't, it, it, he, don't you think that he, he, they treated each other as equals. Jefferson did not treat Martha as an equal. Uh, they do treat themselves, each of we other, as intellectually We don't know. Yeah, they did. They absolutely the, did. And, and I friend, think a lot they, of people They valued did. friendship. Right. But I think that marriage could have a friendship in oh, it. No, but, but you're quite right that he made all the big decisions. Right. And she and that deferred is, that, on every case. That's, that's absolutely true. the case. If that's the definition of patriarchy, that, okay, right. you're right. But I mean, on, there was leverage. I mean, people can be friends in a patriarchy, and I think there were but, a lot it, of good marriages. You'd I have think to her, say it is different it. from the other marriages. Well, I don't think we know about Jefferson's marriage. I mean, oh. we know about Jefferson and can surmise Martha things about Martha could play the piano. Marriage. She could sing. She knitted. She but but she was not when when when. But we don't. She French, didn't write letters. No, when so French, we don't know. Yeah, but when a French philosopher comes to visit John Ad, right. uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. He never sees Martha. When someone came to visit the Adamses, they saw Abigail. She was, she was there. And that just wasn't true with, with, with Jefferson. Martha stayed in the background when he's talking to some philosoph. He's not going to have Martha present, except at, on, on the appropriate occasions when she could sing and, right. and, and so on. Yes, sir. During the years that um, Jefferson and... and um, Adams were an adversarial relationship. What was Abigail's relationship uh, with uh, Jefferson? What did she think of Jefferson at that point? Oh, she supported Adams entirely. She was always sympathetic with her husband first and primarily. Um, and um, during the time when there was this long hiatus in the relationship between John and Jefferson, when they didn't talk to each other, um, Jefferson's daughter died. Right. And Abigail had taken care of the daughter in Europe and was very friendly. And that daughter of Jefferson's died. So Abigail opened a, a, an exchange with Jefferson because she grieved the loss of that young woman. And Jefferson wrote back. And they had an exchange of about 10 letters over a period of maybe nine months, I think. And um, Abigail didn't tell John about it. And they wrote back and forth, and they confronted each other about what was wrong in the relationship between John and Jefferson. And Abigail very bluntly told, Adam, told Jefferson the things that he did wrong. And she, said, she enumerated them. And he wrote back, and he justified his position. And then she terminated the relationship. And she t terminated the correspondence and... Um, at the end of the correspondence on the last letter, John Adams wrote, I have, been, I have seen this correspondence. She showed it to him after. It was uh, Jefferson, as I say, was always polite, and he made one mistake in the correspondence because he, he said, uh, I have only one regret that uh, Mr. Adams uh, uh, did uh, that I find unforgivable. He made all these judicial appointments as right. a lame duck president. Uh, <laughs> And that's true, including John Marshall was a lame duck uh, appointee by John Adams. And, and uh, he made that, that's his only criticism. And Abigail, that's it. <laughs> she doesn't want any criticism, and that ended it. And so that it takes another, well, this is uh, 1804. It's not until 1812 that they, uh, they get back together through the uh, mediation of, of Benjamin Rush. Uh, let's go over here. Uh, during the cut... During the Jefferson-Adams correspondence, during the teens and 20s, was Abigail aware of the correspondence, and did she play any role in it? Did she comment on it? Did she know about Jefferson's letters? 
Right, she did. She knew that, they were, that the friendship had resumed. And um, she wrote, um, she didn't in, engage in that correspondence with Jefferson. I think she sent him a note or two, or sometimes would append an, a sentence or two at the end of one of John's letters, but they didn't um, continue. That was solely between Adams and Jefferson. Okay, sir. Uh, first off, thank you for a wonderful uh, discussion. Uh, my question is uh, about Abigail. Obviously, from these very, you know, at the time, private correspondence, we get to hear and learn a lot about what she thought of others, what she had to say about some of uh, her husband's contemporaries. Um, what do we know about what uh, some of her contemporaries uh, thought of her, said about her, obviously being a woman you know, who couldn't really have a public role at the time, whether other uh, uh, political figures or other women at the time in their private, what do we know about what others uh, thought, thought of about her at her? the time? Um, well, she, she did have correspondence with a number of friends, particularly Mercy Otis Warren is the famous one, who was a poet and playwright, um, who was also a friend of John Adams. Um, and uh, a very erudite woman as well. Um, Abigail had a lot of friends. People liked her. People found her very warm and engaging. They enjoyed conversation with her. Um, and um, um, and she, she, she corresponded with lots and lots of women. In fact, one of the surprising things to me was that um, after their retirement, um, after the Adams's retirement from the presidency and the first lady, in 1801, there were so many letters, and they become domestic. They become, they're very domesticated, and they're to friends. And she makes new friends, and she makes young friends. Um, so, yes, she was, she had a lot of friends. One thing and, we haven't said about Abigail is, is she manages the farm. He, he's in, in Europe, and yeah. she's running this farm, and she does it well, and, and, and uh, Jefferson's, he just he's, he just has never met a woman like her. That he he says that he he's impressed by her because she's got domestic economy combined with intellectual achievement. He says there's just nothing that kind of combination he's not seen before. Uh, so we forget how how much she was responsible for uh, for the success of that farm. They're much better run than Monticello. New England woman. <laughs> uh, we have time for one more question, sir. Thank you. I was wondering if, if you could speak to the leadership qualities and charisma that John Adams had in convincing the colonists to support this concept of revolution. Well, I think there's a lot of latent support. Uh, Jefferson certainly uh, was a radical right from the outset. Uh, Adams is the one who's on his feet talking, uh, opposing John Dickinson, who was a moderate and was wondering, what are we going to do? So he's answering every single uh, objection. Uh, he was, as, as Jefferson said, a colossus. Uh, uh, he was the man who made it possible. And that's the impression they had. It, it, but he could not have convinced uh, 75 men who weren't tending generally in that direction. Uh, there are lots of people who are lukewarm, but most of the people at the, conven at the Continental Congress were, uh, I think, on the edge of, of independence. So it was a question of his uh, speaking out and saying things uh, that they were thinking about but needed to have voiced. Uh, and, and I think that's why they thought that when Thomas Paine's Common Sense is is published, they thought John Adams, originally many people thought John Adams had written it because he had spoken so, so strongly for independence. And one of my, I'll end with this, one of my favorite uh, moments in John's life is when they're in the home stretch of this debate about the resolution to declare independence and the New Jersey delegation has been, you know, balanced and finally the guy who's gonna tip it comes after John has been speaking and he has to start all over again and go through it for this guy, but he does, you know? So they, they were ready to pull the trigger, but, but
but someone actually has to pull the trigger. And that, that I think, is John. So thank you very much uh, to our speakers. And thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. We thank you so much, Gordon Wood, Edith Gellis, Rick Brookheiser. And we thank you all so much for coming. It is so wonderful to see all the seats filled, to see all of you here. Enjoy the evening. Please stay for the book signing. We're doing a book signing on the Central Park West side. Our museum store is on the 77th Street side. And please come again. Thank you so much.